0: From the Southeast Florida studios of the law firm, Tripp Scott in Fort Lauderdale. This is Politics and Sunshine, a continuing series of interviews with local and national subject matter experts, tackling the issues that make you stand up. In this episode, Tripp Scott CEO, Ed Poswale, talks to legal analyst, Fox News contributor, and author, Greg Jarrett. Here's your host, Ed Poswale. Today, we have Greg Jarrett.
1: Greg has been on Fox News and is a legal analyst for over 20 years, has written several books, including Witch Hunt and The Russia Hoax, and is coming out with a new book, Trial of the Century, dealing with the Scopes Monkey Trial. Greg, welcome.
2: Ed, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on.
1: The new book that you're talking about really is a mainstay of American jurisprudence. And Clarence Darrow obviously was the lawyer involved and it really dealt with free speech, didn't it?
2: It certainly did. Uh, the trial took place back in 1925 at a, at a time when states started banning books on science. And in Tennessee, they made it a crime to teach evolution out of fear that it would undermine the Bible, which it didn't. And a young school teacher was arrested, and the greatest trial lawyer who ever lived, in my mind, Clarence Darrow, came to the rescue. And it was the trial of the century, not just because the media at the time converged on this town in Dayton, Tennessee, where the trial was happening, and newsreel footage was shot of the trial. It was the first trial broadcast live on national radio to a riveted nationwide audience. but No, it was the trial of the century because free speech in America was at stake. Civil liberties, intellectual freedom, academic empowerment. And all of this was at stake. America was on the precipice. And what I find so interesting is that Daryl won in the court of public opinion, and it changed America forever, and it opened up avenues of free speech and the ability of students to learn. And we haven't ourselves learned that lesson from 100 years ago, or we simply forgotten about it because, Ed, you know, we're seeing today the same thing happening all over again. You know, these debilitating censorship campaigns, a cancel culture, whereby conformity of thought supplants robust debate. I just find it so frightening that history is again repeating itself. Well, we had that the last couple of years. A lot of the college
1: campuses used to be bastions of free speech and now are really uh, bastions of conformity. If you don't believe what they believe, then you're ostracized in some way.
2: Yeah, it's absolutely true. And, you know, at my alma mater in San Francisco, I went to law school the Federalist Society there invited a professor back in Georgetown to come speak to students. And he was shouted down and prevented from speaking. I know the dean of the law school, and I, I contacted him. And I said, what the hell is going on? You can't allow this. This is a violation of free speech. And law schools and college campuses and all schools are supposed to be Venues of the free exchange of ideas and information, even ideas and opinions that you may not agree with. So, what? The First Amendment protects all kinds of speech, even hate speech. And when you begin censoring it by threats of violence or shouting speakers down, or the government engaging in censorship by proxy to suppress speech not only violating the Speaker's First Amendment rights, but as the Supreme Court has said, the First Amendment rights of the listeners, the audience who have a right to hear even things they may not want to hear or agree with. And, you know, I, I find it so abhorrent that we have now moved into this censorship that has taken over America. And, you know, you and I were talking a moment ago, Ed. And you pointed out RFK's congressional hearing. Right. I mean, they were trying to censor him from talking about censorship. Right. You can't make this up. Right. They
1: were censoring the hearing on censorship. That was crazy.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the members of Congress uh, made a motion to stop him from testifying. My goodness. Debbie Wasserman Schultz needs to read the Constitution. And in particular, I would point her to the Bill of Rights and the First Amendment.
1: We can have a whole different discussion about Congressman Wasserman Schultz. But let me move on, because given the atmosphere, politically speaking, and on the Republican side, President Trump is out there running and he has a set of legal issues that are out there, real or contrived. It's hard to know where to start with him around how do you explain to somebody what is actually happening. But the New York indictment appears to me anyway, to be a form indictment. We really don't know what
2: the basis of that is. Yeah, it doesn't even state what crimes he's committed. It's the most ludicrous and politically driven indictment I've ever seen. I mean,
1: I think they pulled that indictment out of a form book, but the second indictment dealing with the one here in Florida, dealing with the documents, that's a little bit meatier. And now there's a couple other things on the horizon from what we've been able to read and gather. How do you see Trump legal issues playing into the politics of the moment and the presidential election, his ability to run, and how voters are going to view that against Republicans sort of rallying to his side about being targeted on one hand? And on the other, Democrats saying, well, I mean, there may be some meat here, particularly at least at the second indictment and some others. How do you explain that to listeners?
2: Look, just look at the poll numbers. You know, with each indictment or threatened indictment, Donald Trump's poll numbers go up among Republicans. I mean, he, he is way ahead of his nearest competitor, Ron DeSantis uh, in Florida. And, you know, that tells you something. It tells you that Americans are pretty smart. They watched for three years. As the Department of Justice and the FBI and the media all worked together to assure Americans that Donald Trump was guilty of colluding with Russia. Of course, we now know it was all a hoax invented right. by Hillary Clinton and funded by Hillary Clinton and then co opted by the FBI that knew at the outset that it was all made up. But they used the phony dossier as a pretext. Go after Trump with a vengeance to destroy him and drive him from office. And it didn't work. And Americans learned a lot through that sordid experience not to trust the FBI and government prosecutors, and certainly don't trust the mainstream media. And so they see sort of the same thing happening again Donald Trump being targeted in Florida over allegedly classified documents. Which should be controlled by a civil statute, the Presidential right. Records Act, but Merrick Garland, who is uh, the most partisan Attorney General since Eric Holder, decided to weaponize a criminal statute that has no application. So they'll, as you know, be a big court battle over this, and we'll wait and see what happens. Trying to nail Donald Trump for the January sixth violence and property destruction is, as I wrote in my latest column this week, an enormous stretch. There's nothing in his speech, for example, uh, that incited violence. It's certainly not under the Brandenburg versus Ohio Supreme Court constitutional standard. And so it looks to me like they're going to go after some other things that bear no resemblance to the facts and evidence So we'll see how that plays out. But every time they do that, Americans become suspicious that this is the government armed with immense power and unlimited resources who have decided to politicize their prosecutorial decisions. I think Americans resent it. It's the chicken little theory, right? You
1: cannot yell and scream that the sky is falling and then try to get everybody to believe the sky's falling, but it's really not. And yeah. so there's good reason to be suspicious. And frankly, it goes beyond, in my view, goes beyond Donald Trump, and that you, you termed it weaponization, but you know, it's an unequal application of the rule of law, which diminishes what separates us from many countries around the world when one set of people can utilize the power of government and law to kind of do their political bidding. It seems to me we're going down a rabbit hole that's going to be difficult to get out of. How would you suggest we address that go forward? I mean, short of electing a Republican, I mean, we've heard Donald Trump obviously on this. We've heard even Ron DeSantis talk about dismantling potential of the DOJ. But how does that work out? Because ultimately, my view of it is that people who are at the DOJ have to honor the rule of law and apply it equally, regardless of what the political wins of the day are.
2: You know, we've seen time and again, they don't do that. Right. Uh, you know, running a protection racket for Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, you know, just yesterday, you know, we uh, finally saw the FD 1023 FBI form that had been hidden and concealed from the American public and from Congress, and it wasn't even classified. Doesn't that speak volumes? Look, in my judgment, how do we deal with it is your question. There are two ways. Ultimately, in a constitutional republic based on Madisonian democratic principles, the ballot box is the ultimate solution. You know, Americans have to be angry enough, outraged enough, fed up enough, to want to change. And change happens during elections. And we've got one coming up, a presidential election. So that could dramatically change the landscape of equal justice under law, which brings me to the second backstop. Those words are inscribed on the pediment of the United States Supreme Court, which has always been the ultimate backstop when government Abuses its power. And they often do so in unconstitutional ways. And it is always up to those nine high court justices wearing black robes in that esteemed building to say, no, you can't do this. But what's so amazing is that uh, people like Joe Biden don't care what the U.S. Supreme Court says. I mean, they just spanked him and told him, you cannot unilaterally by executive fiat forgive a half a trillion dollars in student loans. So what did he do? He turned around and he did it all over again using a different statute that's even weaker than the first one.
1: But he also did something that I thought was very dangerous, and I want to get your comment on it. He also ridiculed and criticized the institution of the Supreme Court because simply because they didn't agree with him. How do we get beyond that? Because regardless of what the majority of the court is at any given time, the court should be above the politics of the day and having the president of the United States essentially diminish the sanctity of the court simply because they disagreed with him seemed to me to be beyond the pale.
2: Oh, I absolutely agree. His words were contemptuous and his Actions in defying the recent Supreme Court decision demonstrates nothing but animus and contempt for the nine justices on the Supreme Court. And you know, Joe Biden isn't the first person among Democrats to have leveled venom at the Supreme Court. Chuck Schumer standing out in front and literally threatening Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. Liz Warren doing the same thing. I mean, I could go on. on. What is so astonishing to me is that, you know, when conservatives who have a particular point of view lose a Supreme Court case, they don't do that. They don't go out in front and threaten the Supreme Court justices. They don't vow to their voters that they're going to stack the court and change its composition. In my experience, in my lifetime, only Democrats have done that. You know, when Roe versus Wade was passed, of course, there was criticism among Republicans in pro-life groups, but not with this sort of ugly rhetoric. That is exclusively the domain of Democrats and liberals.
1: Do you buy that they don't know who leaked the decision or the leaker at the Supreme
2: Court level? Oh, they know it. You know, John Roberts, and I'm not a fan of John Roberts, never have been. I think the only thing he really cares about is the reputation of the court. And fidelity to the law and constitution, less so. It was always a charade when he appointed the in house marshal at the Supreme Court to conduct an investigation over which he had no skills or experience, not a federal marshal, mind you, but the court's marshal. And that tipped me off immediately that John Roberts didn't want to get to the bottom of it because he thinks that if the individual is identified, it might make him or her a martyr, and it would further besmirch the reputation of the court. So, you know, that was an investigation that was phony and a charade, and I think he found out who did it. It seems to me it didn't take a lot of investigatory skills, but uh, we may never know.
1: While I have you, let me switch gears and ask about what your thoughts are on the presidential politics side, particularly on the Democratic side. You mentioned Robert F. Kennedy. Obviously, he's challenging Joe Biden. Do you think ultimately President Biden is their nominee?
2: Yeah. Assuming his health holds up, I don't see anybody. And I mean that sincerely. I mean, he is frail and feeble, and his mental acuity seems to diminish day by day. My goodness, you know, as he sat down with the president of Israel the other day, fumbling and mumbling, and, you know, nobody could understand him. And it didn't make any sense. And that seems to happen almost every day, every time he opens his mouth. You know, his enemy is the teleprompter. He mangles it every time he tries to read it. They trot him out now and again, and he reads from a teleprompter poorly. But when he speaks extemporaneously, my Lord, it just underscores that he is senile and it's frightening and should be frightening to the American public that this is, you know, the president of the United States, the leader of the free world, and Ed, I'm sure you know our enemies in China and Russia, and Iran, North Korea, they're paying attention, they're watching it, and I think some of their actions demonstrate that they realize America has a weak leader, and we're going to take advantage of that on the international stage.
1: Switching over to the Republican side, I mean, obviously, as we sit today, President Trump has a lead nationally, but we're aware that these are primary races state to state, whether Governor DeSantis or anybody else can
2: break through. Is that possible? Oh, it surely is. We're light years ahead of the nominating process, which culminates in the convention, which is, of course, next summer. And, you know, in my lifetime, I have seen frontrunner after frontrunner falter and fail. And they were a sure thing, we were told, by the media and by their own parties. So, there's a lot of time and a lot can happen, Ed, between now and then. And, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. But I I think it's still an open game for the Republican nomination, albeit I recognize that Donald Trump has a huge base of support and it's reflected in his handsome poll numbers.
1: Yeah. And then it'd be interesting to see do you see any of this from a debate standpoint? Trump is still figuring out whether he's going to go to the first Republican debate. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. But it would be interesting to see who else pops out of that group. Obviously, DeSantis has the second tier right now, poll-wise. And then you've got the rest of the group. Is there anybody in that group that you see popping out to challenge, even run up to DeSantis numbers,
2: at least provide a third alternative? Well, I think DeSantis has an impressive record. And, you know, the learning curve for him in presidential political campaigns is pretty steep, but he's a smart guy and he's very capable. He's demonstrated that. So I frankly see his poll numbers going up as he gains confidence and uh, coalesces around a message that resonates with Republicans. I'm also and always have been very impressed with Senator Tim Scott. His life story is amazing. He articulates quite well the things that Americans care about the most, and those are generally pocketbook issues—putting a roof over their heads and food on the table—and they, you know, they have been badly harmed by Bidenomics, which is runaway inflation. Not to mention the other issues of, you know, an open border and rampant crime. Energy policy that drives prices up, not down. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, the Biden energy policy is insane. We were energy independent and Biden reversed all of that. And Americans are having to pay for his stupidity.
1: Well, I look forward to uh, reading your book, and I want to make sure everybody understands The Trial of the Century regarding the Scopes Monkey Trial and from the
2: actual transcript. Trial of the Century. It's in bookstores nationwide already and available online at the usual places, uh, Amazon.com and so forth. Hey, listen, it's been fun, Ed, uh, talking to you, and and I really appreciate you having me on.
1: Well, I appreciate you spending the time with us and good luck with the book. And I think it's a very timely topic around censorship and free speech. Hopefully uh, people pick it
0: up and enjoy it. Thanks for bringing attention to it. Let's do it again sometime. That sounds good. Politics and Sunshine is a production of the Fort Lauderdale law firm Trip Scott, serving Florida and beyond for over 50 years. A reminder that this podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute legal or professional advice. No user should act on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without obtaining proper legal or other professional advice specific to their situation. Please be sure to like and share this podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time for another fresh edition of Trip Scott's Politics and Sunshine.